the people at the highest levels of power in the U.S. government actively colluded to keep key details about September 11th from the American public. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. My Liberty lyricists, welcome on back to Lions of Liberty. Your home, as always, for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. I'm going to bring you another one today, and this, the 244th episode of this program, which means that you can find the show notes featuring links to everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 244. Today's episode is brought to you by the fine folks at Health Excellence Select who have put together the ultimate free market solution for all your health care woes. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. All right, folks, and here with me today, I have the founder and host of The Corbett Report, an independent alternative news source funded entirely by the listeners. The Corbett Report has just about everything, including podcasts, interviews, articles, and videos which seek to break down issues that you're just not going to hear about in the mainstream media. I am, of course, referring to Mr. James Corbett. James, are you ready to roar? I am. And since I'm coming to you from Japan, I'm going to teach you the Japanese roar. Because in Japan, lions don't roar. They say gao. So, (laughs) gao. Have you actually encountered a lion that made that noise? Um, well, I, to be I'm fair, not trying to fact check you too hard here, oh, but well, I haven't encountered a lion that says roar either. Either so. <laughs> that's, that's a yeah. good point. That's a good point. <laughs> so, James, uh, since you mentioned it right there that you're living in Japan, why don't you just kind of start off talking about that? I mean, uh, how, how did you end up living in Japan and why did you end up moving there? Uh, it was really completely random. I was uh, I was in Ireland at the time. I'm a Canadian, but I was studying uh, Anglo-Irish literature in Ireland at the time, and I was on campus one day towards the end of my program, and I was wondering what to do with the rest of my life, or at least for the next year or so, and I ran into someone who said, oh, I'm thinking of teaching in Asia, and I thought, hey, that's an idea. I typed it into a search engine. The first thing that came up, I ended up applying and ended up getting a job uh, teaching in Japan. Just that simple, had, huh? Yeah, had no interest in Japan before that point. hadn't studied Japanese, knew nothing, just thought it would be a good way to see a bit of the world and was going to go here for one year and then two years, three years, four years. I'm here for 12 years now. Wow. So is that prior to you getting into independent journalism? Absolutely. It wasn't even a, a twinkle in my eye at that point. I had no, no, no inkling that I would ever be involved in this. In fact, it's kind of funny. I studied English literature and Anglo-Irish literature, and people always ask me, what are you going to do with your degree? The first thing I would always say is frame it. And then <laughs> if they actually prodded for an answer, I would say, I don't know, but I will never teach or be a journalist. And I ended up <laughs> teaching and then becoming a journalist. And here so, you yeah. are. Now, so why don't we get a little bit into that? So what exactly inspired you to get into journalism, become a independent journalist you know you didn't seek out a job with you know a japanese media company you immediately started doing your own thing so what inspired that it was a combination of things i think it was opportunity and then the motive was uh, provided shortly thereafter i was moving uh, to a new apartment here in japan and I, uh, the, the apartment came with uh, an internet connection, and it had been the first time in years that I'd had an internet connection in my apartment. I'd been going to internet cafes to, you know, download a few podcasts and check emails, but suddenly I had the internet in my apartment, and it opened up a whole different world to me that I hadn't been online the last time I was really online, which was Google Video and things like that that, that uh, were popular at that, that moment in 2006 when I first got this. And 
I, so me being me, I've always been politically inclined. I've always been interested. I was always on the left side of the left-right uh, spectrum, uh, being a good Canadian boy. I think you're born socialist. Well, of course. So I was, it's in the, I was it's coming in the genes. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I was coming from that perspective and I was watching the types of things on YouTube and Google video at the time that someone from that bent would watch the Daily Show and things like that. And I started to encounter in the related section of YouTube at that time in its early incarnation, these documentaries about these crazy, you know, conspiracy subjects. And I'd click on a few of them from time to time just to have a laugh. And that became, after a while, I started to see, I mean, obviously there were some that were just ridiculous, as there always are, but then there were some that made interesting points. And it was interesting because when I'd watch some of these documentaries and they'd, they'd make a point or make a claim about a document, well, I'm on the internet, I can go look up that document. So I would go and look up the document and go, wow, that's actually a real document. I didn't know that existed. And that process basically started the snowball. And from there, once you're starting to do research and things and saying, well, I can access to directly. This is amazing. You know, it's a kind of a new, it's a new phenomenon. And uh, I just got caught up in that. And then I started getting into all these podcasts and things and thought, well, hey, I can do this. I mean, I, I have to do something to try to spread some of this information to others. So I started the podcast and just never looked back. Do you recall anyone, maybe not the particular video, but any one piece of information or something that really stood out to you that, that kind of sent you down a rabbit hole and really got you thinking deeply to the point that you actually are at now, where you just went into journalism and, and got to that point where you decided to do this for yourself? There were a lot of topics at that time that were swirling around that I was interested in. And I'd always, my entire life, I'd always questioned the official story of the, the JFK assassination, as I think a lot of people do, that it was not a lone nut that perpetrated that. But other than that, I'd never really dipped my toe into the, uh, the realm of alternative uh, media or journalism. So uh, it was all new to me. And I was intrigued intrigued by 9-11 truth. Specifically at that time, it was around the fifth anniversary of 9-11, and a lot of that was coming uh, coming up and, and uh, in searches and things on the YouTube and Google video at the time. And I remember seeing some of those, and it was that was an area that I was particularly unwilling to go into because I thought, well, that's just, I mean, I, there's a lot of things I'll, I'll be happy to entertain questions about, but 9-11, that seems a bit too far. And it was, but as I started to encounter more and more information about it and the history of various operations like Operation Northwoods, that started to intrigue me even more. And I think the penny drop moment for me was actually the Money Masters documentary, um, Bill Still uh, presenting the documentary about the history of central banking in the United States. It's a three and a half hour. I, I suppose pretty dry documentary, but for me, it's extremely fascinating. Oh, this is the money system. Oh, this is how it works. Oh, money is debt. Oh, I, it's created by the pri private banks for their own personal profit. That's strange. I never knew any of this. That was really a penny drop moment for me to understand just how thoroughly the entire system can be controlled if the central banks themselves are are really a private cartel. It's it's interesting to me how many people kind of get sent down the road of looking into things more deeply through the money issue because in in some ways it's kind of boring on the surface, you know. I mean I mean, you know, the, the inner workings of a banking system, it doesn't sound like the most exciting thing in the world, but when you start to look into it and you realize how much you haven't learned the reality about it, when you realize you never were told in school that there's this Federal Reserve system and they're actually privately owned but they're giving 
a mandate by the government. And, and you realize, wait, why is this something, this one thing that's so seemingly important? I mean, it's literally uh, affects everything we do in life. We spend money on our food, our house. Everything we do is affected by the value of our money. And yet we're never taught in school or even really in college. Maybe the, the phrase is mentioned in Federal Reserve, but you're never taught the inner workings. You're never taught about what it really is. And, and I think when people start learning about it, it sets off some alarm bells just to the sense of, wait, why have I never heard this before? So is that, is that kind of the same thing that happened to you? That's precisely my experience of it. It was the it was the overwhelming uh, sensation of realizing, oh, this is this is information that is clearly available and has been for for my entire life, but I have never heard it spoken of by anyone. Why is that? Why has this been uh, occluded from my my attention all these years? Why have my educators never educated me about this particular topic? And it certainly it was a penny dropping moment for me. Well, why don't we why don't we go down that rabbit hole a little bit? I mean, what are the answers that you got to that question? Why do you think this is a subject that is not brought up very often? Why do you think this is something that I mean, I, I think it's every day we should be seeing stories about how insane it is that we have a Federal Reserve. If we actually had a media that was that was watching out for the citizens, uh, clearly we don't. But that's why we have people like you out there. So why do you think this is such an important issue that's just not talked about that openly? And at least since Ron Paul brought it into the political mainstream was basically never mentioned uh, in, in the political realm here in the U.S. Right. Well, I, I think the answer to that is actually remarkably simple. It's because it's a system that benefits a very, very, very few people. And effectively, I mean, it's a controversial word, I suppose, but I would say enslaves in some sense uh, a very, very large number of people, chains them to a debt system that they don't even understand the operations of, let alone agree to. And if they understood that system, well, um, it would collapse very quickly. If people understood the implications of the system that they willingly participate in every single time they go out and uh, transact with, you know, U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve notes or whatever the equivalent is in their country of choice. So um, absolutely, I think it's it's quite it's quite a basic answer. It's just that very rich and powerful interests collude to keep this information from the public because it doesn't serve the public's interests, or it would serve the public's interest if they knew about it. But uh, from the perspective of the, the you know the ruling the ruling class, they want to keep those people uh, away from the knowledge that would set them free. And I have to imagine a lot of the stories that you look into deeply might tend to have that same answer behind them. Like the reasons we haven't heard about a lot of this stuff from our mainstream media, and I call them mainstream, but really they're, they're corporate media. They're a media that is very closely tied to the major corporations that influence our government and tied back into that government. So it's kind of a never ending cycle here. So it's, you're obviously not going to get, you know, into the really the heart of the matter from the, from these sources, which is why I think the rise of independent journalism is just so important. And, and you mentioned 9 11 there. And as you know, we are rapidly approaching the, uh, blows my mind, the 15th anniversary of 9-11 very soon. And James, you've done an incredible amount of work on 9-11. I, I think it could be a really difficult subject to tackle, as you kind of referenced before, because on the one hand, I think it's it's very clear from anyone that takes even a cursory look at, at this issue that there's simply more to 9-11 than meets the eye, more than we've ever been told by our government, by that mainstream media. Uh, but there's also just so much material out there about it that it, it can be really confusing if you start to go down that rabbit hole. I mean, You'll find a lot of stuff that says, okay, I can see some, some documents here that, you know, this is pointing me to something strange and we can go down that hole. But then you'll find some other stuff about, you know, space weapons and laser beams. And I'm sure there's some sort of time travel theory out there in relation to 9-11. So it can become really difficult to sort 
through it all and separate fact from fiction. So uh, how did you f- first start to approach this issue of 9-11? And, and uh, what are some of the more, I guess, obvious, identifiable sort of contradictions in the official story that you can find? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is... And I know really we could spend been, hours talking exactly. about that. Exactly. <laughs> this has been the basis of my research for at least a decade now. So it's difficult for me to see all of the individual trees for the forest at this point. But um, I suppose the way that I initially approached it was, I assume, like many people encountering these ideas for the first time in, you know, YouTube videos and things of that sort. And as I say, looking at some of them and some of them clearly being ridiculous and then other ones at least providing some sort of sourcing and citation that I could look up for myself. And I think that was uh, an important way of, of me coming to a better understanding of it. And it really is just the, uh, the process of going through the source documentation for years and years until you actually understand the various pieces of this puzzle. And it's such a, a huge and overwhelming puzzle. I mean, people think of 9-11, obviously, as a day, a single day in which a couple of events occurred. But of course, the connections with all these various players and, and uh, the history behind them and how they, how they conspired. And because one thing that we have to, I think, get out of the, the way right away is that um, the word, of course, conspiracy theory is used to you know denigrate anyone who has any questions whatsoever about what happened on September 11th. But the official story is a conspiracy theory. We have to understand they are theorizing about how people conspired to commit a crime. So now that we have you know the the connotation out of the way and we're just working with the denotation of conspiracy theory, everything that is said about 9/11 is a conspiracy theory. So um, that has been sort of the block for a lot of people in ever questioning the official record, the official story. And that official story is constructed from three main sources. Um, there was the the joint inquiry um, in 2002, this officially the joint inquiry into intelligence community activities before and after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. I dare you to say that five times very quickly. Um, <laughs> you call up with an anagram the, or something for that. They, <laughs> I think maybe it's uh, it's a tongue twister, twister on purpose, right? but that's the Senate House uh, Joint Select Committee on Intelligence uh, review of the intelligence activities um, leading up to 9-11 and you know, the, it's a, presumably the intelligence failures of 9-11. And that convened in February 2002. It issued its report in December of 2002. The other sources, that the main sources for the construction of our official understanding of 9-11 would be the 9-11 Commission, which, of course, I think most people would be familiar with, uh, um, released its final report, I believe, in 2004. Uh, that sounds right to me. Um, and then there was also the NIST, the National Institute of uh, uh, Science and Technology, Standards and Technology, released its report on the WTC Twin Towers collapse. And then in 2008, it released its final report on World Trade Center Building 7 and its collapse. So those well, let's are the stop there for a second. Why did it take four years to look into this extra building that wasn't well, even really... years, really, se- from the right, 9-11 yeah. itself till the final issuing of the final report. Right. That's a good question, and one that would best be directed at NIST, um, <laughs> which issued over the course of its investigation... Five separate tentative theories of why World Trade Center Building 7 might have collapsed. So several conspiracy theories, you might say. (laughs) Well, I mean, several building structural failure theories anyway, um, including um, some theories about how it was the boilers uh, in WD7 exploded and that 
help cause the building collapse. And they, they, uh, there were the, one of the theories was that the, uh, the, the towers collapsing had damaged part of WTC seven. And that damage led to the, the structural failure of WTC seven. Eventually they had to throw all of that out and they came up with the idea that it was thermal expansion, uh, specifically on a girder on column 18. Basically it heated up and walked off the girder. Uh, the column walked off the girder and well, down comes the building. Um, which is absolutely unprecedented in the history of structural engineering. That and one column would cause a building to collapse straight down in its entirety. Right. Well, it, it, there's a lot of problems, even um, even confusion within NIST over some of the structural details of World Trade Center Building 7. Um, Kevin Ryan, who's done such great work on this and other issues, has a great um, and very thorough presentation on the problems with the WTC7 uh, report. But also, uh, another key part of that is NIST actually provided this computer model simulation that they constructed of how WTC7 collapsed, um, showing, oh, okay, it was this structural failure at column 18 because of the fire, blah, blah, blah. Here's what it looks like. They even showed it at the press conference. You can watch this model, computer model. It's it's basically, and you know, a cartoon because, <laughs> because the underlying data that actually underlies that model is classified. They classified the data that they put into that model because it, quote-unquote, would jeopardize public safety to release the information about uh, their their model, how they constructed that now model. That, now, so, that's fascinating because if they have found data that explains the collapse of a building, you would think that to help public safety, releasing that data would be right. Exactly. The more that we know about this, the more it should be spread so that people won't make the same mistake in building their, their buildings that in the future. That seems logical, but I guess that's not what, how they, they felt about it. And, uh, well, anyway, yes. So those are the three main sources. And, of course, the joint inquiry has come back into the news in the last couple of years, interestingly enough, over that redacted, classified 28 pages of their report, which was specifically about foreign, um, foreign entity, foreign government participation or uh, aid to the uh, alleged hijackers in the 9-11 scenario. And it's interesting to me because I, I remember, I wasn't even really following this at the time, but I remember back in December 2002 when they issued their final report, I was in Canada watching this on the news. And I remember seeing uh, the reports. They were talking about the redacted 28 pages. What's in the 28 pages? And everyone said, oh, it's Saudi Arabia. It's pointing the finger at Saudi Arabia. So this has been a very open secret for all these years. And on top of that, in the intervening years, various researchers and journalists have done various FOIA requests that have basically pieced together the 28 pages because they are based on reports primarily from FBI investigations that were taking place around the country, also from a bit of CIA material. But those reports themselves have been FOIA'd um, over the years. So a lot of this information was already out there. But suddenly, for some reason, it became this big political issue a few years ago, and the momentum gathered and finally... Finally, they were released on July 15th of 2016, uh, a momentous date that will go down in history for changing pretty much nothing. But here's the one sentence summary of the 28 pages, if we need one. It is that the people at the highest levels of power in the U.S. government actively colluded to keep key details about September 11th from the American public. If you want one sentence to explain the 28 pages, that's it in a nutshell. And the details are important, but uh, they're, they're very confusing to people who don't know the story. But that's, that's the takeaway. Yep, they lied to you, about, or at least covered up extremely important parts about 9-11. What else did they cover up in those intervening years? 
Well, James, it certainly does beg that question. We're going to dig a little bit deeper in just a second. But first, I need to take a minute out to tell our listeners about our great sponsors at Health Excellence Select. You know, I'm a freelancer and I purchased my own health insurance and I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My premiums and deductibles were skyrocketing. And as someone who keeps myself pretty healthy, I knew that I was getting a raw deal for a product I simply didn't want. This caused me to seek an alternative, and I found an amazing alternative in the form of health sharing, a killer concept where healthy individuals agree to share their medical costs. That's right. It's a voluntary free market system for paying for your health care that also, thanks to an exemption, covers the Obamacare mandate. Our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch by creating a full-service package to handle all of your health care needs. Trust me, I'm not just a proponent of health sharing. I'm also a client. This has been one of the greatest things I've ever done to leave the Obamacare system in favor of what our friends at Health Excellence Select are doing. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. And don't hesitate to give my man Jeff Cantor a call at 440-283-684. Four, nine. Be sure to mention Lions of Liberty. Now, that seems like a story that should be a really, 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 really big deal. I mean, it should you should be seeing headlines all over the place. Instead, we're still hearing about the antics at the RNC, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, all this jazz. And yet the biggest terrorist attack in the history of the United States, which led to multiple wars, uh, an expanded police state. Uh, it's recently been confirmed that we were literally lied to about some very important aspects of that and yet not a peep from the media. Yes, which would only make sense. Uh, well, it doesn't make sense if one expects that a the media's role is the the guardian, uh, you know, for the public to to watch out for the public's interest, which obviously it has not been, especially over the past decade and a half and again everyone understands the uh, the abysmal not only failure but the uh, the really complicity in mass murder that the media participated in in their run up to the Iraq war. Um, but for some reason, for 9-11, the idea that they could be, you know, obscuring the truth about 9-11 is just beyond the pale for some reason. But um, and of course, the other side of that is the idea that the two croniest political parties with their political, you know, um, uh, insiders somehow actually care about uh, exposing the system itself, because this isn't about, you know, partisan politics per se. It's certainly the 28 pages anyway does relate into Bandar Bush, i.e. Prince uh, Bandar, who was the Saudi Ara- uh, Arabian ambassador. And that's, to the, the, that's the one they referred to as Baby Bush or Bandar Bush. Or, exactly. Or is that and right? who referred to him as that? It was George W. Bush's nickname for Prince Bandar. He called him Bandar Bush because Bandar had been kicking around with the Bush family since the time of George H.W. Bush, back when he was director of the CIA, after having never worked for the CIA before, right, guys? He just suddenly got appointed to director of the CIA, right? Out of nowhere, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so there, I mean, there are some deep connections there, and you would think if this was a real, you know, two-party system and they really hate each other, they're really playing against each other, guys, you would think Democrats might make some hay of that, throw, throw a bit of mud at uh, George Bush, but for some reason, crickets. I mean, it's fascinating to me that something so purely criminal 
has been released by the United States government. And I mean, there's just no outrage about it. I guess it shouldn't be fascinating to me because I, I've seen this go on for so many years now when, uh, you know, the alternative media will put, you know, put some information out there and, and you won't hear a peep from the mainstream. So it's nothing new. And that's again, why we need journalists like you out there and continuing to, to rise now. So let's try to dig into these 28 pages a little bit deeper though. I mean, it, was there anything in there that surprised you? I mean, I had heard you speak about the 28 pages before they were released and you didn't seem convinced that it would, you know, reveal much more than you had already expected it to reveal, which was that there were, of course, ties to Saudi Arabia, ties to Saudi Arabian intelligence and royalty. So, but was there anything there that did, did pop out you out at you as being, um, you know, revelationary? I can't particularly think of anything that was, that was mind-blowing to me in terms of something that, you know, was completely unexpected. Um, there is a lot of detail in here, again, constructed from these FBI reports that themselves have largely been known. But um, the details themselves, I mean, they're, they're interesting, but the, they're, they're pretty confusing to people who aren't intimately familiar with the story. And I guess the nutshell of the key part of the 28 pages, there's, there's a lot of other details in here, but really it centers around a lot regarding these two alleged hijackers that flew into San Diego in, in uh, December of 2000, Nawaf al-Hazmi and uh, Khalid al-Maidar. And these two were, are particularly interesting because they were flying in from Malaysia, where they'd been at an al-Qaeda conference with KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the supposed mastermind of 9-11, A to Z. Uh, a to Z. He confessed supposedly, to to that under extreme torture, including being waterboarded 183 times in a single month. In fact, they didn't just torture KSM himself. They also um, kidnapped his children and said they talked to him about the idea that they might uh, torture his children, you know, putting them in boxes, confined boxes with uh, insects and things of that were specifically said to KSM. So, um, I mean, take the 9-11 Commission report for what it's worth. Also, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed literally confessed to crimes that he could not have committed, including planning attacks on a bank that did not exist when he was first captured. So <laughs> That's the kind of information you're going to get when you torture somebody, because at exactly some point right. they just want to tell you anything to make the torture stop. If you say I did it, I did it, and uh, right. please make it stop. So, And, of course, again, let's never forget that the CIA was ordered by a judge not to destroy its evidence of the torture um, um, uh, sessions, and they went ahead and just destroyed 92 videotapes. I'm of, sure that was an innocent mistake. Uh, well, <laughs> no. The, <laughs> Hopefully the facetiousness is coming through. <laughs> that they directly dismissed. Wow. And they never, of course, no one's ever going to go to jail for that. Um, the only person who's ever been um, put uh, in chains because of, you know, the CIA torture is the one who tried to blow the whistle on it. So there you go. Um, that's how the system rolls. Um, anyway, all of this was to say... Um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. I forget why I was on that twist, actually. Well, that, that's the kind of rabbit hole that you go down when you're, when exactly. you're going There's down. so many layers to this onion. It's uh, extremely difficult to contain them all. Um, and the, so the two, the two alleged hijackers that were in San Diego, uh, they arrived in December 2000 from meeting KSM in Malaysia. And here's the thing. The CIA 100% absolutely did know that they were in an Al-Qaeda summit in Malaysia. And they 100% know they were on the way to the United States. And then these, these guys lived in the United States from December 2000 until September 2001 under their own names, completely out in the open. And, hey, how's, how's this for an extra ad? They lived with an FBI asset in San Diego, Abdu Sattar Sheikh, a literal FBI asset who uh, they were literally living with in San Diego. And 
you know, somehow or other, he just never really reported that to his FBI handlers. And, you know, who would have known? But interestingly, Abdu Sattar Sheikh is not mentioned in the 28 pages. Apparently, that's an irrelevant detail. Um, so these guys come in and the 28 pages centers around some people who were supporting them or at least had ties to them. Um, for example, one of their alleged associates was Omar al-Bayoumi, who was getting money again from um, Bandar Bush, um, basically from his wife uh, to his wife. It was a kind of a, you know, a double cutout kind of um, uh, thing. But th- they were getting checks of 2000 to $3,000 per month, starting at the time that these two guys arrived in San Diego and uh, going on for, I think, a, a period of uh, a year or so. So they were getting money while the hijackers were living there, and he was associating with them, and he was getting it from Prince Bandar, so uh, indirectly. So, th- again, those are the types of connections that we're looking at in these 28 pages. And they're, I mean, they're quite... Uh, they're quite convincing that there was some sort of relationship going on. And of course it doesn't, I mean, there's no signed or dotted lines of, you know, the orders from any, any particular consular official or any Saudi Arabian ambassador or anything, you know, for the, uh, the 9-11 plan or something like that. But it's certainly a lot of very interesting information. And I think the way that it's trying, they're trying to downplay it at this point is to say, well, yeah, those were a lot of the kind of initial leads that the FBI was going for. But that was just the, the kind of early stages of the investigation. And, you know, the investigation carried on from there. And it kind of, you know, we, we followed up the leads. We, we, we exhausted them. I suppose that's the excuse for leaving it out because they can say, well, you know, we didn't want to implicate people that we had already looked into and we decided that wasn't really a big deal. So we didn't want to put that information out there and, and smear our, our good friends in Saudi Arabia. Yes. Well, that's I mean, that, that to me, that's what this 28 page brouhaha has been about over the last few years. This is clearly not at this point about 9-11 or uncovering the truth about 9-11. I think this has to be seen on the geopolitical scale. Um, Clearly, it's the U.S. government that has been keeping this from the American public in order to protect the Saudi interests and Saudi um, sensitivities uh, is suddenly releasing this. And uh, the only question really is why, why now, why did this fervor develop at this point? And you know, what, what does this mean that they're releasing it at this point? Do you have a theory of your own there? I certainly have some theories. Yes. Um, I'll hear one. (laughs) I, I think this has to, to be seen in the, uh, the the I don't want to say collapse or destruction, but certainly the pulling apart at the seams of the petrodollar recycling system that has been at the base of U.S. dollar hegemony since the 1970s, since Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard, since the failure of Bretton Woods, at least the overt failure of Bretton Woods. What has really undergirded the international system? Why is the U.S. dollar still the world reserve currency? At least part of that is to do with the Saudi-U.S. alliance that was really first forged towards the end of World War II, but was um, accelerated in the 1970s through some back-channel diplomacy with uh, Henry Kissinger, who managed to basically, I think, do a little bit of sleight of hand to get the, uh, the, the, the gold standard, the $35 an ounce that was backing up the system pre-71, starting to uh, jigger that system to make it so that Basically, there's a deal, a quid, quid pro quo with uh, Saudi Arabia. We'll give you some military arms sales. We'll give you military protection in the region 
And uh, in return, you're going to price your oil in dollars, um, basically setting the market for OPEC generally. And you're going to take those U.S. dollars that you get in return for your oil. You're going to recycle them back through the U.S. banking system, buying U.S. treasuries and and uh, using U.S. banks. And that that has been the system that has uh, functioned for decades. And there are signs, certainly, that that system is not functioning quite like it used to and will not uh, for the long-term future, especially now with all of this talk about the post-carbon economy and Saudi Arabia itself starting to divest Saudi Aramco and to try to create a $2 trillion slush fund so it can try to invest and uh, divest itself from its oil-based economy. Uh, Clearly, the writing's on the wall for the petrodollar recycling scheme as a fundamental undergirding of the U.S. dollar system. So, I think that that this has to be seen in relation to that and in fraying geopolitical relations with Saudi Arabia with regards to Syria. The Saudis clearly wanted more U.S. participation in terms of active military participation, kind of boots on the ground, or at least, you know, bombing raids over Syria over the last several years. They haven't quite gotten the amount of support they wanted. And um, U.S. overtures towards Iran have very much upset Saudi Arabia. Um, and the Iran nuclear deal, of course, very much upset Saudi Arabia. So, uh, I, I, again, I think this is the U.S. government um, it, it, basically with a carrot and stick. The carrot, of course, so, you know, we can have this system. We, you know, we'll provide you these arms sales. We'll, we'll make sure that you get protected. Uh, the stick being, you know, we can always bring out the 9-11 card. We can always start digging into some of these connections. And uh, I think that that's ultimately what's going on here. Sure. And those 28 pages are really only scratching the surface because I, I believe I heard there's something like 80 to 90,000 pages of other documents that are classified that are related to, to Saudi Arabia. I, I had heard that figure. I mean, I don't know the exact figure. I'm sure nobody really does. But there's a lot more information, the point being, about this that, that is not even you know, in any of these publications. Well, the, the 28 pages, again, largely centers around the story of Al-Hazmi and Al-Maidar and their connections. But again, that's only two of the 19 alleged hijackers. And they were the ones, you know, living in San Diego, and they had all these interesting connections. But really, most of the, or a lot of the, the key hijackers, like Mohammed Atta and others, um, were in Florida. And there are there there has been lots of FBI investigation into what was going on in Florida, but that wasn't thoroughly reviewed by the Joint Committee. That has been more or less under wraps, and I think that's related to that 80,000 pages of documents that Senator Bob Graham, who was one of the co-heads of the Joint Inquiry, says uh, he didn't even know about until years later when um, the journalists were asking him about this, and he's... he's I don't know. I don't know what's going on with that. So um, at least that's the story that he's telling uh, to the public. And I'll take anything that Bob Graham says as far as I can throw him, which isn't very far. Um, but at any rate, there there is obviously a lot more information to this. This is not the be all and end all of September 11th. It's not like, oh, here it is. Here's the plot, you know, signed, sealed and delivered. This is just one tiny little glimpse into a section of it that is really, when you look at it, it's a tiny glimpse of a section of the tail of the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is the deep state, the deep state connections between various U.S. government officials and business officials and uh, intelligence uh, operatives and their counterparts in Saudi Arabia and everywhere else, Israel, and all of these other connections come into this in this big spider web. And that um, is, of course, the thing that dare, that cannot be named. You can never, ever, ever look at the deep state behind that functions behind the ostensible government. And uh, I think that one of the, the researchers that's done just 
excellent work on this subject um, and really coined the idea of the deep state in uh, at least American political parlance is uh, Peter Dale Scott. And he's written a lot of books on this and uh, on the road to 9-11 and things like that. So he has done such work on this issue and it's starting to gain a toehold in, um, in, in sort of uh, mainstream journalism. And you see even uh, some pretty amazing, like the American Conservative, um, the um, LRB, some pretty mainstream publications are starting to talk about the deep state and its implications. And is there a government behind the government? And the answer is a resounding yes. And there has been at least since the creation of the national security state with the uh, National Security Act in 1947 and, you know, the eventually the creation of the CIA and all of the craziness it got up to in Iran in 1953, 54 with Mossadegh and all of the stuff that it's done since then, Iran-Contra. I mean, we've seen glimpses of the deep state when it comes up to surface time and time again. And I think this is another example of that. But again, don't don't ever talk about it in those terms as if there's, you know, there's nothing more to politics than what we see on the very surface level. Well, James, I know there are just so many endless numbers of threads we could go down on this topic. And instead of spending another six hours with you today, I will just direct people to the Corbett Report. We'll try to link to some of the specific uh, items that we discussed in today's show. And of course, we'll send everybody over to the program and the videos and everything. And so before I let you go, why don't you just give everybody a quick roundup, a quick summary of everywhere they can find the Corbett Report and all the work that you're doing? Uh, I do quite a lot of work for different uh, places. I've uh, got... I, I'm a video producer for Global Research uh, TV. That's uh, globalresearch.ca. It's an outfit based out of Canada. I write an editorial for the International Forecaster newsletter at the internationalforecaster.com. I do some work with uh, Boiling Frogs Post, which is rebranding into newsbud.com. But basically, the one-stop shop for all of my work is corbettreport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T report.com. You can find pretty much everything I do right there and all in one spot. Guys, be sure to check out The Corbett Report, one of many great sources for independent journalism. And if we're going to get to the truth about things in the world, this is the kind of places we're going to need to turn to. So please go ahead and check it out. James, thank you so much for joining me here today. Keep up the great work. Thank you for having me on. All right, folks. And it was indeed a pleasure speaking with my man, James Corbett, all the way from Japan. He joined us to discuss this topic with me. And and 9-11 is always a very difficult subject to broach. It's one that I don't bring up that often, especially when it comes into getting into the realm of quote-unquote conspiracies or really any conspiracy that goes against the official government conspiracy. And you know, I like to stick to philosophy, the ideas of liberty, and I do think that conspiracy theories or even just looking into history, actual history, not just theories, I think focusing too much on on the specifics of events can actually be a big distraction, I think, from from really the core problems in our society. Because I really do believe that the core issues that we're seeing that manifest themselves in a lot of these terrible events, that manifest themselves in wars, that manifest themselves in acts of terrorism, that manifest themselves in all the bad laws we see in our, in our current political system, that manifest themselves in people like Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton hanging up here as, as one of the two figureheads that are supposed to lead us into a prosperous future. These are all caused by a bad philosophy, a poor philosophy of the individuals in this country of, frankly, most of the individuals in this world. Most people don't really have a conception of the idea of individual rights, and that is what I try to focus on. At the same time, (laughs) events do happen. (laughs) Things do occur, and these events can often help shape the world around us. Now, in the case of 9-11, this event actually is something that got me first thinking more deeply about politics. Before 9-11, politics was sort of something that just lived in the background. 
You know, I, I, it was uh, it was a TV show to me. I I had conversations about it, but it wasn't that serious. It's just politics. Well, 9-11 made me realize that politics has consequences. Because what I saw that day, and I was about 21 years old. I know a lot of our y- younger listeners might not have been even old enough to really comprehend what was even happening or might not even remember it. And I know to many people out there that are the age I was when this happened, it's really probably just something you heard about in school that you have a vague memory of as a child. But what this event did for me is it woke me from my slumber and it, it got me into the realization that the the foreign policy of the United States, the decisions that we make, the things that we do to influence our government in one direction or another, everything has a consequence. And 9-11, to me, appeared to be a consequence of, of many of our actions in many ways. And this was, of course, echoed by Ron Paul uh, during the debates when he ran for president years and years later. The fact that our foreign policy, when we're going around causing 9-11s, causing the deaths of thousands of people in many countries all over the world, and we can debate the reasons that those deaths occurred, but they are occurring, and that cannot be denied. Innocent people are dying around the world thanks to American bombs. That is going to have an effect is going to have an effect on those people and and blowback is real and i truly do believe blowback is a real thing the cia believes it and uh, most political pundits nowadays use the term and really ron paul brought that term into the political forefront uh into the, the modern political lexicon if you will the thing about these events though is is We only see a portion of everything. We see a government version. We see a media version. We're only going to see a slanted view. Even James Corbett's view, he makes an attempt to be very unbiased in his journalism. That's why I brought him on. We're all biased in our own way. I'm biased in my own way. I want to find events and people that, that can point out the benefits of the ideas of liberty, the benefits of individual rights. It's It's hard to separate ourselves from our biases ever. But when an event like 9-11 occurs and has such far-reaching consequences, like we talked about during the show, multiple wars have been launched, and an entire police straight structure has been increasingly encroaching upon us through things like the Patriot Act, through the NSA, and and the event of 9-11 is still to this day invoked as the excuse for all these things, the excuse for why we need to be surveilled at all times, the excuse for why we need to have an aggressive foreign policy, even when... All evidence points to that aggressive foreign policy as being one of the things that causes events like 9-11. Events like terrorist acts, that why people reach out, why people lash out against the forces that they see as their oppressors. So even buying the official narrative of what occurred on 9-11 that we've been told through all these years, that really does reinforce that notion that our actions have consequences. I don't think anything is going to change that. Any new information we find out about this isn't going to change that. But... When you got people, when you have presidential candidates still invoking this event to justify every terrible, horrible thing they want to do from torture to spying to wars, well, maybe we should dig into it a little bit further sometimes. And now, thanks to a lot of movements about transparency, the the 28 Pages movement, we got those 28 pages out, and that really is obviously just scratching the surface of what we're not being told. And I'm not claiming I have some grand conspiracy theory and I know all the answers. I'm not claiming it's an inside job. More likely, there's a lot of malfeasance and incompetence and different government agencies that are are poking their heads into each other and trying to scramble to pretend it's all fine and pretend, you know, nothing is amiss outside of the official narrative that that terrorists came over here because they hate us for our freedom and they attacked us. Now we got to go invade all the countries around the world to keep us safe. (laughs) So guys, I don't know all the answers, but I think at this point, There is enough actual, verifiable evidence that there's some 
shifty stuff going on. Well, maybe we should keep paying attention. Maybe we should encourage our friends and family members to pay attention. Because when a certain story starts to fall apart, you go back and look at our foreign policy over the last 15 years, and you realize how it was directed and how many people died because of the focus on certain countries. When it turns out, there might be heavy involvement from another country, one that we sell weapons to right now. (laughs) It's madness. It's total madness. And I don't know how to fix it. But I do think that truth needs to come out on these matters. And it's a very difficult subject, like I said, to approach because that label conspiracy theorist gets just slapped on anything that questions an official story. But I was very confident in bringing on Mr. James Corbett, someone who I know does very thorough research and backs everything up, he says, with that research. And this stuff is out there. This stuff is available. You can go read the 28 pages. You can find out more about this stuff by checking out the Corbett Report and all the work that James has done on this subject, which we, of course, will link to again in the show notes for this program, lionsofliberty.com slash 244. Now, this coming Wednesday, I know it's been a while because I've been here in Utah in the middle of nowhere for the past few weeks. It is actually a very lovely state. Some very nice people here, I have to say. But let's just say it's it's not quite the same as being in Los Angeles, being at the Lions of Liberty Studios. It's been a little odd. I'm pretty excited to get back home, and I'm pretty excited to host another roundtable with some of my great compatriots. Now, this is a very important time coming up because the Lions of Liberty podcast was actually launched for the first time on September 13th, 2013. And as you know, this coming Wednesday is September 14th, 2016, if you're listening to this podcast in order. Now, that'll be one day, technically, after the three-year anniversary of this show, so feel free to wish us congratulations or whatever you like, but I decided this would be a good time to gather some old friends, some of my fellow Lions of Liberty contributors, and have a good old-fashioned roundtable, maybe host even a little party of my own to celebrate the three-year anniversary of Lions of Liberty. If you want to congratulate us as well, you can head over. To the Lions of Liberty Forum, that's right, it's our private group on Facebook. All you have to do is type Lions of Liberty Forum in your search bar, in your little Facebook search bar there, and it should pop right up. You can just request to join, and as long as you do not look like like a Nigerian prince, which we have literally had a few Nigerian princes trying to get into the forum, I am not joking about this at all, we'll get you right in there and you can join the conversation about the ideas of liberty. Until next time, folks, live love! and live free.